Before we begin, you should know that this episode contains conversations about the trauma of sexual assault. You're listening to Chapter 3, Body Talk. I love my body. Every curve, every inch, every mark, every dimple is a decoration on my temple. My body is mine. And nobody owns it but me. And who I choose to let in is so lucky. You may not think my body is perfect, and it probably never will be. But when I look in the mirror, I love what I see. Megan Thee Stallion at the 2020 American Music Awards. As you can probably already tell, today we're talking about bodies. The early messages we receive that inform how we move, how we interact with ourselves, with others, and how we even come to think about sex. But we're gonna do something a little different today, something we wanted to experiment with as a team. So hear me out real quick. When our production team thought about how do people first learn about sex education, we realized that a lot of it happened in schools. And many of us could definitely relate to that moment, you know, when your teacher would roll out that bulky cart with the TV and the VHS player for video time. And as much as we all loved watching videos because it meant less classwork, let's be honest, the videos were always super stuffy and very outdated. But we all love a little nostalgia, right? So we decided to put a new spin on the sex ed video to really have the kind of body talk that I think a lot of us wish we had back in school and maybe even now. Oh, and by the way, I'm Gabrielle. You can think of me as your class TA for the day. Martina's joining us too, but this episode, she's playing the sex ed instructor in the video to bring us all the facts and figures along the way. So whenever you hear this music, that means we switched back over to the video. And don't worry, I'll be here to give you a few examples of how the data plays out in real life through the stories of Anasia, Shayla, and Eric. But before we begin, let's just start with the basics. Hey y'all, let's face it, sex education in this country can be really corny and leave more questions than answers. Sex ed is so much more than just putting a condom on a banana or even abstinence. It's also about learning about our bodies, our sexuality, sexual health, and intimate relationships for the first time. It's the time where many people start to explore what pleasure, desire, consent, and agency should look like. And we know that not everybody learns these things in class. Sometimes it's from a parent, an older relative, or even friends. Sometimes it's stumbling around and figuring it out on your own. And other times, it's from the things we see on TV and in the movies. Speaking of which, let's pick back up with Anasia. You may remember that before she called rural Iowa home, she grew up in Cleveland with her mom, dad, grandmother, and older brother. And around the time she was five, she started to learn even more about her body. I would probably say one of the earliest memories of my body was um, the first time I actually ever scraped my knee, which is kind of funny. Um, I was I was trying to be grown, you know, ride my brother's bike. He had just got his training wheels off. And I got on there and I biffed it within like two seconds. Like, spoof. And uh, like scraped up my whole knee, my whole leg. It was just like all covered in blood. And uh, my mom was cleaning it with peroxide. And I was like, you're hurting my elbow. She said, I kept calling my knee my elbow. And so then we started talking about my body more. And somehow that conversation went from just cleaning my knee to like, 
you know, she was telling me about, like, not letting people touch your body and, like, talking about your different parts of your body. And, um, and that kind of, like, taught me about, like, my body in general. When Anasia was about 10 years old, she learned a new lesson about how the body works. Instead of her mom sitting her down for the birds and bees conversation, her mom's stash of adult videos became her new teacher. It was the middle of the night and I, I woke up and I was about to go to their room and ask a question about something and the door was cracked. And so I looked because the door was cracked and the TV was on and it sounded really weird. So I was like, what? So I like peek. My dad's snoring like really, really loud. And I look on the TV and she's like watching porn on the TV. And so I'm like, whoa, what is that? Like, and I didn't say it out loud. I just kind of leaned on the wall and was like watching it. So naturally, the next day when she was gone, I went to go find the tape. And so I found the VHS tape and I like put it in and I was just like sitting there watching it like, like it was just so much happening in this video. And uh, and I was just like, I don't know what's going on. My brother walked in the room. And he's like, what are you watching? And I was like, this is mom's. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh that was my first time like actually seeing porn like I I mean my brother would watch the scrambled stuff like with the static and stuff um and so but that was the first time I ever saw that and so that gave me another dynamic of sex and let's just say Anasia wasn't the only one trying to catch a peek of the action and to be honest that's a case for a lot of young people across the country let's turn back to the video for more on this for so many kids Porn might be the first time they ever see sex. And the data supports this too. A 2018 study from Indiana University revealed that a third of young people have seen porn for the first time by the age of 12. And students, let's keep in mind, this isn't really a huge surprise when you think about how influential porn and even pop culture can be in defining what sex and intimacy are, even if it's an incomplete picture. But what happens when puberty arrives and your body starts to change and take on a new life of its own? What happens when the adults at home aren't even comfortable talking about it? Or maybe what they do say just doesn't seem to be enough. Growing up in the Mississippi Delta, Shayla remembers first learning about her period from her aunt, who was a local labor and delivery nurse in the area. But beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot of body talk happening at home or even at school for that matter. The other things about body came from school, and so it was, you know, sex education, quote unquote. And, you know, this is what happens. Basically, they try to scare us into not having sex. And just like media is a huge influence, where you live is important as well. Our state governments play a big role in how and if you receive sex education at all. And for states like Mississippi, it's pretty grim. I'm sure the video has some more context for us. Let's break this down. In 2011, the Mississippi State Legislature passed HB 999, its first ever bill requiring public schools to teach sex education. It sounds good, but the catch is that the bill mandates schools adopt an abstinence-only policy that, quote, teaches the social, psychological, and health gains to be realized by abstaining from sexual activity, unquote. On top of that, any demonstrations of contraceptive use are banned, as well as LGBTQ topics and conversations about sex outside of marriage. Beyond the Delta, rural students' access to sex education has become even more limited. For instance, the Guttmacher Institute found that from 2006 to 2013, 
the percentage of rural youth who received instruction about birth control declined from 71% to 48% among female students and from 59% to 45% among male students. So when you take into account things like HB 999 or the fact that rural students are having decreasing access to sex education, it may not come as a surprise to learn that Mississippi is also ranked as the most religious state in the country, according to a 2016 Gallup poll. And so more than just at home and in the classroom, many Mississippi kids, including Shayla's husband, Eric, well, they start to learn about sex at church. Growing up in the environment, the Pentecostal, uh, Bible Belt, Deep Southern, and Black environment that I grew up in, there was not much talk to me or my peers, but other boys, about our bodies. Of course, around 12, 13, the church, like many churches, had a, a couple of events where they bring out everybody between the ages of nine and like 19. Yeah to talk about sex and you shouldn't do it. and But it was never really a talk about, okay, this is what's gonna happen in your body. I remember one piece of one of those sessions where the person on the video, and the entire session was pretty much conducted with a video. The person on the video mentioned wet dreams. And that was, that's the only memory I have of anyone discussing what might take place in my body with me. Okay, class, are you still with me? It's time to talk about the big old government again. <laughs> State rights and county-level policies often determine the curriculum for sex ed. But in 1981, the federal government became instrumental in setting a national standard with the Adolescent Family Life Act, or the Chastity Bill. This policy provided funding to communities and faith-based organizations that implemented sex ed curriculums that drove home abstinence-only messaging rooted in the notions of chastity and self-discipline. Sounds like our country's separation of church and state is more theory than practice, huh? Unfortunately, the chastity bill left many students like Eric without a space to have real conversations about the changes happening to their bodies, their desires, or sex itself. I'm pretty sure that's the only time I was ever talked to about my body was the guy on that video from the 80s that they showed us. Is the only person who ever talked to me. I wish I had gotten more uh, discussion on these things from parents and siblings and friends and all of that, but it was just so taboo, like this whole idea of sex itself. Shayla also longed for an outlet to have these kind of conversations as her body changed throughout puberty. But her dad's advice mostly focused on just making sure Shayla knew how to protect herself. His exact question was like, how do you know when a guy has gone too far with you? Like, it was just that kind of conversation, like not getting caught up in a situation where a guy takes advantage of you. That sort of thing. And then the other thing was just like how to maneuver life as a girl, like, um, you know, somebody might be coming around this corner, so, you know, walk away from the side of the, of the you know, of the wall or whatever, just, um, or don't, you know, don't walk around bushes. Just, it's a lot of fear, like, now that I'm thinking about it, just uh, don't, you know, how to not get attacked or how to think so that I'm not vulnerable. I think we can all agree that conversations about safety and consent 
They're important to have early on and often, but it's also just as important to have an open space to talk about if that boundary is ever crossed. And it's definitely something Anasia wished she had as a young girl. I disclosed to my mother um, when it happened and she was going through some other stuff with my father at the time. They were That was the first time we had the split. And it was like a few weeks before my birthday. And um, so it was like, I want to say it was right before Thanksgiving. My birthday's in December. And uh, I had told her that um, this family member had uh, touched me where she said I shouldn't be touched. And um, I, I think I just said he touched me. And she was like, your father didn't touch you. He would never do that. And I was like, no, I'm not talking about dad. And, uh, and I was trying to explain it to her. And she was just like, I got a lot going on right now. And, like, she was just kind of in this, I don't know, zone or bubble or whatever. And um, it didn't go very well uh, at that time. And so, like, I locked it in and didn't tell anybody for probably, I want to say, two more years um, because of that reaction that I got. And I was like, okay, well, if mom isn't listening, like, who am I going to talk to? And it was like, is this, uh, like, is this something that's supposed to happen? And then remembering that conversation back to being little, like, no, this isn't supposed to happen. Um, cause I had that conversation with my mother. And so that, that dynamic really did, uh, change again, how I felt about my body, how I saw it. And it was more of a, is this my body or is this someone else's kind of thing? And I think the next person I told was one of my friends. Um, and she was like, whoa, like, you're like, that's not supposed to happen. And I was like, I didn't think so. And like, um, and so that made me feel, like I said, more like it wasn't my body. Then I was like, well, since it happened and I couldn't stop it, like, and I was told not to tell anybody, like, does this mean like that, like my body isn't like mine, like I was told. It wouldn't be until college that Anasia began to fully process what happened to her and her mother's reaction. Like many survivors of sexual assault, silence became the solve for Anasia's pain. Instead of opening up out loud to begin the process of healing, Anasia immediately shut down. And that shame and paranoia of feeling like you have to constantly protect or hide your body is also something Shayla wrestled with as a young woman. I grew up with a lot of shame around my body, like, because there was always comment on it. Like, it was never mine, you know? It was always to be critiqued or um, or wished for, you know, people would wish that I did certain things with my body or direct me to do certain things with my body or not do certain things with my body. Or like I said, critique it or point out, oh, you know, you're developing this way or you're developing that way. Like all of these, these comments and this commentary around me about my body, but nobody ever invited me into the conversation. Like, what would you like to do with your body? Or, um, so it, it was just a lot of shame. And then, you know, having, I just didn't know what to do with male attention. It was just kind of uncomfortable, you know, and it was always talked about in a bad way. So just, yeah, a lot of shame, a lot of trying to not be seen. And it's not just young girls who feel this way. It's also young boys and non-binary youth who also get these messages about their bodies early on. For Eric, growing up in a conservative church environment, well, that meant that all the questions he had, all of the ideas he was too afraid to share, all of the curiosity he had about what was going on inside his body, well, it stayed buried inside. Made me feel dirty, even though I was I was not doing anything. Like I I didn't my first kiss was with Shayla. So like I wasn't doing anything, but I felt dirty just for feeling and thinking and wanting to know. 
Um, yeah, it made me feel a lot of shame. I feel like I wish I had had more said to me because I was very curious. I wanted to know what was what was going on inside me and what the boys at school were talking about and all of those things. I think I think if I had gotten more conversation, perhaps I would have thought differently or thought like I do now earlier. Since we're talking about bodies, I want to tell you about a special podcast that you might enjoy. Tight-Lipped is a storytelling podcast that makes public what is often thought of as private pain. They tell stories about conditions that are extremely common, like pelvic floor dysfunction and endometriosis, yet shrouded in stigma, shame, and silence. The show features honest, personal stories alongside analysis from healthcare experts. Subscribe to Tight-Lipped wherever you're listening right now. Now back to the show. Now, you may be wondering what Shayla, Eric, and Anasia's lessons about their body have anything to do with pregnancy, birthing, or even parenting, because after all, right, that's what the show is all about. But as we know and come to learn as we get older, is that those very lessons about our bodies, about sex, well, they lay the foundation for how we start to understand intimacy, romantic relationships, and even the idea of having kids. I would watch the show Birthday. They would come on um, with it, Discovery Hill, and then there was a baby story on TLC. And I just was so fascinated when I would watch those. And it really kind of didn't come from anywhere except my just natural fascination with it. And then I thought I wanted to be OBGYN for a while, um, but then I didn't do that. <laughs> and that that's about that was it as far as childhood and, and birthing. That I mean, the only thing I heard about yeah, I didn't hear anything about birth. Kids, yeah, but nothing about birth. Everything I knew came from sitcoms and my mother's uh, eavesdropping on, you know, my mother's conversations with other women about childbirth. Um, so I knew that my mother had had a lot of miscarriages and I didn't exactly know what that meant, but I knew that she had struggled to give birth to me and my siblings. So I think my whole thought about it was childbirth. Oh uh, yeah, that's a struggle just like marriage. And I was pretty dead set on not doing either one of those things, especially before I met Shayla, like that was never crossing my mind. But having babies had definitely been crossing Shayla's mind. Being a mother was something that she had been daydreaming about since she was young. As a girl, I always said I wanted five kids. I don't know why, except it must've just been ordained because that, I don't know why I wanted five kids, but I just always said I wanted five kids. And from girlhood to like, young adulthood, I honestly hadn't thought much about it. I guess I just assumed that it would happen or something. I didn't think much about it, but then after I got married, um, after being married for a few years, then I started to want to have that conversation. Um, but, you know, Eric wasn't really comfortable with it. So we just kind of didn't talk about it for a while. So, I mean, that was kind of tough, but at the same time, it's like I understood, you know, um, I can't say that I felt like we were completely ready at that time anyway. This would be a conversation that Shayla and Eric would return to time and time again throughout their marriage. Both of them wondering if they were ready to have kids, when would be the right time, and what would pregnancy even look like? These conversations were that much more difficult to have because, just like Anasia, 
Shayla and Eric grew up in a culture of silence and shame, around their bodies, around sex. But luckily, this wouldn't be the end of their story. In our next episode, we'll explore how Shayla and Eric's journey to become parents connects to a powerful lineage of Southern freedom fighters and one of the first Black-founded towns in the country. It looks like our time together has come to an end. Thanks for joining us for today's topic. See you next time.